0: You'll all join me in prayer. Almighty Father, we're so grateful that we can come before you on this Sabbath day to learn your word, to study the words that you gave anciently for all of us throughout the ages. We pray that you will guide our hearts, guide our minds this day so that what we might learn would be remembered and instilled in our hearts so we know that we have a desire to follow you in all things pray that you'll continue to watch over us, keep us safe in these uncertain days, and ask that you continue to guide your people, bring those on into truth who have a desire, and we might be a a small help in that regard. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you'll bless this day and our gathering, and that we may be a close follower of you, each of us. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. You know, those who experience a come to Yahshua moment are suddenly driven to align their lives with all aspects of the Bible. They want to follow the Word in every possible way. They study what the Scriptures say about proper biblical worship, and for the first time in their lives, they are on fire for the truth. What do they do next? Well, they go to find somebody who might Listen might learn the same things, and they're just uh, the the containment. The the eagerness can't be contained. They look around with their newly opened eyes and and see that what is mostly practiced in worship is very different from the word they're reading. And they say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Sometimes they find polar opposites to what the word says, to what they see practiced today. Such a man wrote, I used to think that all churches and denominations were pretty much the same and all followed the word in their own way, but they still followed the word. Boy, was I wrong. Revealing the contradictions that we see all over the place, and we all know, we've all grown up with seeing these things in today's uh, teachings, scripture is a big part of what YRM does, teaching the word, teaching the contradiction, showing the way, showing that what happened anciently is not the same as what we find today. To persuade the world of truth after thousands of years of, of waywardness and deceptions, we need to first show that a historical departure occurred somewhere along the line, or maybe even at the beginning. Something happened, something went wrong, something went fluey. And it didn't get any better. It just got worse and worse. The first couple of centuries after Yahshua and and his disciples worked on this planet became the most critical part. Two strong forces were at work early on. First was an undercurrent of anti-Semitism and a desire to dispense with anything Jewish which is why they drifted from Passover and went on into Easter. That's incredible. Thinking about that the very Savior they rest their entire faith on was of the tribe of Judah. There's a disconnect right there. The first eye-opener is when they learned that the biblical faith in both Testaments was Israelite. The writers were virtually all Hebrews. They see that Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham and extended it down through Israel. That's the only major covenant he made with man is with Israel. Yahweh had a reason. He sent Yahshua to earth at Bethlehem and not to Athens and not to Rome. Yahweh keeps his promises and commitments as As the song says, there's no shadow of turning with him. Once he makes a commitment, he he sticks with it. Wouldn't it be good if everybody did that? Think about this. Geographically, it's at the crossroads of three major continents. Three major continents. What better place to put his name, to put his faith where it could go out, spread out all the way to the ends of the earth from there. Well, sadly, the world couldn't accept Yahweh's plan to spread the truth via Israel. There were a number of reasons the apostasy occurred that we read about in the New Testament. The apostles saw the writing on the wall. They gave admonitions and exhortations necessary to keep the pure faith alive. 2 Timothy 2.15... Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, he's not talking about church traditions. He's talking about traditions that were inspired through his messengers, the apostles, or their writings. Peter also wrote, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of Elohim. All scripture. It's profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of Elohim may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We don't need extra biblical writings. We've got the Bible, and the Bible tells us it is for your salvation. We could enumerate many causes for the apostasy, and the biggest being Biblical ignorance that Paul and Peter warned against. One reason for that is that the scriptures were taken out of the hands of the people. And put in the church. So there's only one Bible in the church. And you want to read it, you had to go up to the pulpit. It's chained down. And you got a priest behind you telling you what you're reading. What good is that? Only the church could tell them what was what. And besides, there was total control at the top. Regardless, new doctrines began to appear that have nothing to do with the scriptures, but you can't fact-check it because you can't get the scriptures. So, what do you do? Most of these were covert, but there were also some overt influences that were normally not written about. What helped lead worship away from a Hebraic and into a Grecianized, Romanized mind frame via the Greek language, and especially the translation of the New Testament into Greek, followed by the Latin. You may now have thought of the power of language before, but scientists have done studies and found how, how much language can influence thought and even action. There's power in the way we communicate. And it does it through historic meanings, through nuances of words, that have special meanings, by syntax, by logic rules that affect how a person looks at the world. Even the grammatical structure and the vocabulary have influence in the language and ways thoughts are formed and presented and all contribute to a certain way of thinking, subtle or not so subtle. Numerous studies have brought this out. Language can change how a human mind pulls information together, how uh, bilinguals and even multilinguals who can speak different languages have more perspective, more than one perspective on a topic because they're looking at it from a different angle, different language. The granddaddy of all linguists was Noah Webster. He wrote the first American dictionary, The man to do that, and it took him 28 years to do it, learned 26 languages. I have trouble with one. Can you imagine? Old English even, German, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, French, Hebrew, Arabic, and Sanskrit. It's amazing. I ran across a fascinating study focusing on the Chinese language. And we all know it's got those funny little symbols, little stick figures, you know. Compared with English, which is mostly linear, you know, written on right to left, Chinese characters are more complex in structure and and writing involves strokes in all four directions, up, down. And to form those characters actually helps sharpen the brain, they found. The neural activity in working your fingers and thinking and spatial memory of the brain is improved by writing their alphabet and then their words. The Hebrew, I think, is similar with multiple design in its Hebrew text. And this fits with the Hebraic mind. As one Jewish sage noted, the Semites of the Bible times did not simply think truth, they expressed truth. They experienced truth. To Israelites, the deed was always more important than the creed. The doing, the action was always more important. We're more interested in discovering what Yahweh wants man to do rather than we are in describing Yahweh's essentials, he says. For the Hebrew, Elohim is not understood philosophically so much as functionally. He acts we see that all the way through. We even have a book called the Acts of the Apostles, if that isn't Hebraic. But that's how Yahweh is described in the Word. He's always doing something, causing people to do this or that, or bringing miracles, or always functioning for the people. That's Hebraic. That's, that's the kind of language we're talking. It's not in terms of Pure being in a static sense, but an active sense. Greek, on the other hand, is a scientific and philosophical language. It's got a vocabulary that it's not as big as English, but it approaches it, where Hebrew is like hundred thousand words, Greek is two hundred and some thousand, I read once. So they like to express things, they like to talk things out. Paul went up on Areopagus, Mars Hill. He's walking around, and they're all sitting around their togas, you know, leaning back, trying to hear some new thing. That's all. That's their. That was their job to come up with new stuff, just listening and talking about it. That's what they did. So Paul comes along. He says, "Well, I see you got like, uh, what are you doing here? Well, I'm looking for a certain thing." And he said, "Oh, I guess what I, I, you have a." and the description there, uh says, uh, to the unknown mighty one. I want to talk to you about him. Oh, really? Yeah, we like to hear that because we want to hear stuff. So that's what he did. And it's interesting, he did it that way too. He moved over into their sphere. You see how he did it? Very, very uh, diplomatically so that they would uh, listen even more. I don't know how many converted then. It didn't say, but uh, at least he got the point out. The Hebrew would normally think in terms of a loving Elohim, that is Elohim who loves through his actions, rather than the Greek way of saying that Yahweh is love, a static. The Hebrew mind of biblical times would find little or no interest in many of the issues of the church that debates over the centuries. These issues include, you know, theoretical arguments for the existence of Yahweh, um, what Yahweh is, the nature and the majesty, talk about maybe free will, predestination, and all the specifics of uh, maybe the afterlife. Orientation of doctrine absorbed some Greek and Roman interpretations. Along came the Latin language, and that pretty much sealed the deal. But they weren't Hebraic, they were already kind of like outside the scriptures and interpretation. Had the Hebrew held firm, it, it clearly would have been a profound impact on the beliefs that we see today. We wouldn't seem so uh, so different. We wouldn't seem so orthodox to people out in the world if they had that kind of mindset, that the Bible is centered in Israel in a Hebraic const, uh, construct, a Hebraic influence all the way through when you say we keep the feast, they wouldn't say, oh, you do that old Jewish thing? They would say, oh, ooh, that's, that's Hebraic. Yeah, that's, that's what the Bible says, all right. But we see a different thing now. We see a Greek, Grecian, Roman world, and it's hard sometimes to break through with concepts that should have been carried through from the start, but they left them 2,000 years ago. They would be seeking what they must do in their faith, not just talk about it. They'd be keeping feasts. They'd be keeping Sabbaths. They'd be doing things that the Bible shows us to do. It would also mean that our beliefs and teachings about the New Testament wouldn't be so unorthodox, wouldn't seem so, so strange to many people. Not not everybody. Some people are enlightened, and they know what the Word says. They just haven't done it. But they'd be more on board with Hebraic understanding. It's what we do in this life that matters. Yahweh says over and over again, follow me, do. Yahshua said, follow me, do. Hebrews 5.9, Yahshua is the author of salvation to all who obey him. Don't just talk about him. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. We had an encounter early on in Chicago. We had a seminar. This guy came up and he was just there to fight. Some Christian pastor, and he's talking about, uh, you know, he thought he had the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, do you you obey Yahweh? What do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, he got mad when I said obey. I said, Acts 5.32 says, he gives the spirit to those who obey him. Are you obeying him? That was pretty much the end of the conversation. If we walk in the light, then Yahshua's blood cleanses, cleanses sin, it says. Cleanses our sin. Do his commandments, and we will have the right to the tree of life. Revelation twenty two 14. Third, tossing out the Old Testament also had a huge implication. We're a New Testament church, many say, meaning they claim the New Testament exclusively. Never giving any thought that Yahshua and his apostles exclusively followed and taught the Old Testament and nothing else. Did Yahshua say, uh, well, let me, do, let me, let me wait till, uh, till Paul gets a chance to write his letter about that, and I'll answer your question. No, he used the word. He used the scriptures, the Old Testament. There are 456 Old Testament passages about Yahshua, if you can believe that. <coughs> 456, according to Adersheim's Life and Times of J.C., the Old Testament constitutes 80% of the New Testament directly or in shared quotations and references. 80%, 8 out of 10. With 263 direct quotations in the Old Testament found in the New Testament. Six 150 quotations, references, and allusions link the Old Testament with the New Testament. Does the New Testament throw out obedience? Really? There are 1,050 commands in the New Testament for believers to obey, covering every phase of our lives. Over a thousand to do this, to do that. Tell me. Many find that a universal fighting word today is the in the corner church is obedience i just don't like that word are we to despise obedience when the bible screams it out like every other verse it seems in romans fifteen eighteen, paul says for i will not venture to speak of anything except what messiah has wrought through me to win obedience get that From the Gentiles. It's not just for a Jewish thing to do. It's for the Gentiles. By how? He says by word and deed. This is from the RSV, Revised Standard Version. Deuteronomy 4.30. When you are in tribulation and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, he's talking about right now, in the latter days, if these are the latter days, I have to kind of think they are, if you turn to Yahweh your Elohim and shall be obedient unto his voice. I know my son thinks we're going to have a big influx of people when things really get bad, and I have to believe it. We we studied Nebuchadnezzar, and when he had problems, he turned directly to Yahweh, and Yahweh really put him down. Then he got serious about his life, and I think we're going to see the same thing in this world. People are going to get serious for Yahweh your Elohim is a merciful El, and he will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore unto them. Joshua's main teaching was obey his father as he did, do as I do. Paul said the same thing. A fourth source of division was the influx of foreign beliefs that were already challenging all those assemblies everywhere, their apostolic teachings in the book of Acts. There's always been this stubborn desire of some to follow a different teaching than what the scriptures say, from what they've been taught. They're always looking for a different angle, a way to get out. Beginning with Adam and Eve, who deflected, of course, from Yahweh's command, they continue with the Israelites and their acceptance of foreign religions. Here they go in to conquer Canaan. What do they do? They go pick up Canaan's idols and start worshiping them. Soon as Moses is up the mountain, they're all worshiping a golden calf. I mean, talk about how long does it take to make a left turn? Man is just that way. He can't stick with it, it seems. Some can. Yahweh repeatedly warned Israel about this. It was one of his key concerns. Therefore, he, he said, destroy the Canaanites, get rid of them and their religion, so I don't have to worry about you people going off the deep edge again. Just, he'll just pollute your worship with me then there's nothing left if it's not you there's nothing left on this world I'll just wipe it out you trace history and we can track the derailing of uh, teachings through centuries of alteration adaption and amalgamation ultimately we can use this sword of truth to smash through heresies that arose in the early years and on and calcified over traditions to, most effective, to be most effective, we, we need to show the uniformed and nature of truth and the uninformed and misinformed ma- masses that we need to teach them. To convert those who aren't students of Scripture can be a challenge. What works for one person may not work for another, but we got to try. It works best when taken in baby steps, let me illustrate. Dudley Dooley, who lives down the road here, bought a new fire firebox, new uh, new wood stove. So he says, "Well, to save some money in these hard times, I'll cut and split my own wood." But I don't have a splitter, so he goes down to the hardware store and holds some it, and the. Uh, the store sold him an, an iron wedge like this to do the job. So he takes it home, and he starts hammering. And he hammers, and he hammers, and he hammers, and it's not working. He puts it on the log, and it's not working. He says, something's wrong here. Try as he might. So he takes it back to the hardware store. The clerk says, what's the problem? This thing doesn't work. It doesn't split wood. What do you mean? I've never heard anybody say, it doesn't split wood. That's what it does. Well, it doesn't. Well, well, tell me how you use it. So I, I, just like this. Put it on the log, and I start hammering it. He said, well, Dudley, um, I got some news for you. You see, there's a lot of surface area on that side. That is not going to penetrate the wood. What you got to do is turn it around. Oh, and Dudley got the point <clears throat> sorry about that so anyway i use a silly demonstration to make a serious point to show that to reach most people interested in the truth hitting them with the broadside, dumping the whole load on them is usually not going to work it's not going to work you're spreading the impact over a you know too much it's, uh, it's not going to work Hitting them with everything you know will likely not penetrate their defenses. We found that when you drop the whole load, you're just overwhelming them. They can't handle it. But this, oh, I don't. What? And that too, and the Sabbath and the feast. And, whoa, 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 slow down here. Very few who are just even passively interested can handle getting broadsided with multiple teachings that they never heard before. Most people can't handle too much shock and awe, let's face it. So it takes time to digest new ideas. The best thing to do, one at a time, the Sabbath. Focus on the Sabbath. Maybe focus on the name. Then they can digest that and say, wait a minute, that makes sense. Hey, what else do you got? And, you know, come back and a little more each time. You have a far better chance of piercing through the false beliefs by taking it slow. Once they see you are right, they're more likely to open up to more truth. Ironically, the truths we espouse sound way outdated to most people. Wait a minute, that's that's Old Testament. We're New Testament. That's Old Testament. We're New Testament. And they're steeped in 2,000 years of traditional error. Most will have a hard time accepting that a prophesied apostasy even happened. Too much, too much to digest. They throw up their hands in frustration and say, well, my church would never lead me astray. That very attitude is why they could and why they did. Flip millions to their own advantage because people were too believing. They were too naive. They just followed what the family did. They followed what they had done from a child just kept going with it but never stopped to say wait a minute i need to prove the bible says i'm supposed to prove all things hold fast that which is good if i don't prove anything i'm in neglect of that passage i've got to prove everything so i'm going to do it i'm gonna take my bible and i'm gonna start looking things up we did that when we left uh, the church some what 55 years ago we, uh, we brought our Bibles, which they weren't doing there, and we sat in the front row, and whenever the minister gave one of the few passages he gave, we looked it up, and he starts looking at us. Were they checking up on me? I mean, yeah, we were. We were checking up on him because we wanted to prove it. Have you ever heard the dodge that goes like this? Well, our ministries may differ, but the L-O-R-D we serve is the same. What, what 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 does that prove? It's the same. But does that fly with Yahweh? Of course not. You need to get it right with him. When not the other way around. You need to get it right. He expects to be served with sincerity and truth in a way that is a narrow way. Not a broad way. Easy way. He wants to, us to do it his way. Always his way. We can't just make things up as we go along. One of those truths is his actual true name, Yahweh. Another is obedient followers. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. It all comes with a heart that wants to follow him, you see. Blind acceptance is a dangerous thing. Apostasy happens far less often in a well-grounded group of Bereans who know the word. But over time, the problem is the knowledgeable ones pass on. and What are you left with? Well, if they haven't been taught the word, uh, you've got a problem. If they've just coasted along and let the other guys answer the questions, then you've got a real problem. Yahshua warned in Matthew seven thirteen, Enter you in the straight gate, for wide is the gate. Now, straight, of course, means, it's an old English word that, well, that means narrow." For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. When it's a wide way, you slip right on in. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life. He even tells us there, it's going to be a narrow way. Not broad. Not everybody is going to fit through. Those who are called must fit through if they want to be chosen. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. False prophets. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. It's happened, and it's going to happen more and more and more. Deception. When Yasha talked about Matthew 24, the... uh, the end of the age, the disciples say, Well, what, what, what can we expect? Um, tell us, you know, point by point, event by event. He says, First thing he said was, Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. There's going to be many going on out there saying either they are Messiah or they preach the Messiah and follow me. But, oh, prove it. Prove them first. We believers look at the scriptures and we clearly see widespread departure from what the word teaches. We know it did happen because we can compare the results. We can see the results in comparison with the standard, the word. Showing this fact to others is a key that will help validate our outreach to them and establish our credibility to them. As a ministry returning to the faith once delivered, we're different from the large denominations. And the fact that we are trying to uncover apostasy, apostasy that began in the first century, both at the time of the apostles and up to today, because they were in it. Think about Constantine. I remember in our former affiliation in the church, we had a Bible study. I was just a kid, but I remember the teacher going through the glories of Constantine because he was the founder of our church. And I shook my head, I said, wait a minute, this guy, (laughs) first of all, there's a question whether he was even, even on his deathbed, was he converted? But he was not the epitome of a true saint. So the skeptic, totally ignorant of what happened historically, says, well, that's what you say, that's what you say, but my denomination says otherwise. We then direct him or her to the facts of the widespread departure from Scripture and say, explain this to me. How did this happen? Why did this happen? At that point, they get up and leave because they'd have no clue. So besides showing what the Scriptures actually teach, our task is to demonstrate clearly and soundly that there was a deliberate devi- deviation, and then we can detail how it happened. And we're not making it up. We've got a whole library downstairs that will tell you the same thing. Pick an historical book. Um, even from the church fathers, way back when we got those too. They'll tell you how it all happened. We're not making it up. History is full of the simple acts of churchianities and orthodoxies. Fissures and cracks began to appear almost at the starting line. Even while the apostles were beginning to take the truth to the world it was going on. You got heretics going on. Something was seriously happening in the book of Acts. And they had guys like Simon Magus in Acts 8 who hassled the apostles while they went about their ministry. Justin Martyr was one of the first post-biblical writers, historical writer, to record clear statements about Simon the sorcerer. Magus means sorcerer in Greek. In Martyr's First Apology, he wrote, there was a Samaritan, Simon, a native of the village called Gitto, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in your royal city of Rome did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the acts of the devils operating in him. He was considered a mighty one. This started, it's like They saw Yahshua. They lived with Yahshua, saw his miracles. And these guys come out of the woodwork and say, me too. I want to get a following, just like that. Still quoting. And there was Martian, a man of Pontus, who is even at this day alive and teaching his disciples to believe in some other G-O-D greater than the creator. And he, by the aid of the devils, has caused many of every nation to speak blasphemies and to deny that Yahweh is the maker of this universe and to assert that some other being greater than he has done greater works. What in the world? Well, Martian was a Gnostic. You may have heard of Gnosticism going on there. What is that? It's a heretical teaching. Have you ever wondered as you read in Paul's letters about his warning against teachings he calls rudiments and elements of the world. What he calls weak and beggarly elements, philosophy, vain deceit, wisdom of this world. He talks about all of that. Tradition of men. What did he mean? For an answer, we need to know who and what was opposing the apostles as they walked through the Galilee and beyond teaching the truth. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, "O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Interesting word, science. It's 1101 in Strong's and is the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. A system of beliefs that focuses on knowing and knowledge. Paul is talking about Gnosticism. These guys were Gnostics. It was a powerful movement that would challenge New Testament teachings. And it was gaining steam. They had their problems too. It was gaining steam. It was a blend of Greek philosophy, of course. Babylonian paganism. And that's another force working against the truth and Christianity. And it was the stem cell that gave rise to major false teachings of the church. Gnosticism is knowledge gained intuitively. It just kind of falls on you. you. You just know it. It was a religious experience considered higher knowledge. Yeah, you follow the Bible. We have higher knowledge. We have direct communication. What is this starting to sound like? A religious experience almost rises to the level that Yahshua talks exclusively to individuals or Yahweh does exclusively. Almost rises to that level. My answer Second 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is all we need for salvation. We don't need any ex- extracurricular teachings. We got it right here. And if Yahweh wanted us to have it, he'd give it to us. But he's given it in his word. So we don't need any divine revelation. He might give it, but it would be for a purpose, not just to promote some guy's ministry. You want Yahweh to talk to you personally? Read the word. It's given for that purpose. It's given to everyone. Colossians 2.8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. We're now talking about, remember like we talked before, Greek influence after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Messiah. Philosophy from philosophia, a Greek word meaning love plus wisdom, love of wisdom, hence gnosis. Sophia was the Greek deity of wisdom. We're talking about a pagan mighty one here. Colossians 2.20, wherefore, if you be dead with Messiah from the rudiments of the world, again, that's what he's talking about, the Gnostic beliefs, why as though living in the world are you yet subject to ordinances? What kind of ordinances? I mean we're not supposed to blame the law? No, he he explains it. Uh, 21.23, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. After the commandments and doctrines of men. Of men, not Yahweh. Which things have a indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The 20th century New Testament reads, Such prohibitions appear reasonable where there is a desire for self-imposed service. Self-imposed service, not service from Yahweh. Galatians four three. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. There it is again. Paul talks about this a lot. Galatians 4 9. But now, after you have known Elohim, or rather are known of Elohim, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements wherein you desire to be in bondage? You got all those things you got to do. Taste not, uh, touch not, handle not. You got all this rigmarole you got to go through. For what? It's man made. That's what he was trying to explain. For the wisdom, 1 Corinthians 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with Elohim. For it is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. We can dissemble the parts of popular doctrine today and retrofit them right into the Gnostic scheme. You cannot understand why churchianity deviated from scripture until you see where it came from and how it developed once you see the trends once you follow the you know the quote money trail you you can figure it out for example Gnostics fundamentally reject laws what does that sound like I've talked about it the whole time people that don't want obedience that's what the Gnostics did if the word ethics and morality are taken to mean a system of rules, then the Gnostic is opposed to them. If, on the other hand, morality is said to consist of an inner integrity, arising from illumination of the inner being, a spark within, then the Gnostic will embrace it wholeheartedly. This is because it's spiritually informed, existential. But it doesn't come from Yahweh. So, what? The Gnostic, to the Gnostic, commandments and rules are not important for salvation. Well, he doesn't make the rules. (laughs) Yahweh makes it. I want to follow the one who's going to be my judge, you know. Sound familiar? Rules of conduct for them may seem or serve numerous ends including the structuring of an ordered and peaceful society and getting along socially. That's fine. They didn't mind that. They don't mind speed limits. But when it comes to salvation, adhering to rules is not germane to the Gnostic way of thinking. It's not his salvation. Morality needs to be viewed primarily in temporal and secular terms. It is ever subject to changes and modifications for the Gnostic, in accordance with spiritual development of the individual. Do you hear echoes here of church councils? There were how many? Twenty-some that they called to hammer out doctrines because they were so busy changing biblical doctrine. They had to keep calling together and having a vote. It was doctrine by vote. It It was obedience to something by vote. Is that how Yahweh gives it? Uh, uh, Moses, come up here to Sinai. Take Aaron, your brother. We'll have a vote on these Ten Commandments, if you like them or not. Maybe the Gnostic influence gave rise to the notion that Paul taught against the law as well, which he had to prove otherwise. Acts 21.21 and 24.14, by the way that they call heresy, so worship I the Elohim of the fathers. Believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. That's the word. Maybe the Gnostic influence uh, was a lot more pervasive than we ever hear about. So what definite parallels do we see between Gnosticism and what we see today? Well, we see that laws, spiritual laws, are unnecessary. The Gnostic rejected the Old Testament and its laws. He had no use for the Old Testament because it focused on a demanding Yahweh who they didn't say was the real Yahweh. He was, they call it the, the Demiurge, the little Yahweh, not the one who made the universe. They got that covered too. So if you say you follow Yahweh of the Bible, well, he's not the real one. That's how they said it. Such blasphemy. Salvation comes by way of spiritual experience, in this case, higher knowledge, not through actions, Does that sound familiar? Does this ring a bell? How about the faith alone teaching of Luther and and most of churchianity? All you need is faith. You don't have to do anything. Laws are changeable and relative because they only govern secular things and have no connection to spiritual things. So the church changes the Sabbath to impose, to, uh, impose heathen customs and holidays. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 shed additional light on the Gnostic heresy that was influencing Christianity yet another way. See, the Jewish sect of the Essenes was credited for producing the scrolls. They left Jerusalem because they considered the city too worldly. So they climbed up on this Masada and uh, waited out the end when the Romans would overtake them but they cultivated some Gnostic ideas as well. Paul points out that this asceticism that they had was based on human commands and teachings. They have only a semblance of wisdom, he said, but in essence, their practices are only a pretense that do not lead to any honorable end. What's the point of it? What's the point? When I was in school... The big thing going around was um, were guys getting involved in India, Indian religion and asceticism. You know, you had these uh, people going to airports and selling flowers, walking around with their heads weird, shaved weird. And uh, it just, the whole thing was that. It just went on and on and on. I think that's kind of like the Gnostics. That's, that's probably what they'd probably join right in. Shun provane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more wickedness. And oppositions of science, gnosis, knowledge, falsely so-called. He says they call it knowledge. It's not knowledge. It's gnosis. So, they held that the potential of, of gnosis and thus of salvation is present and every human, every woman, every man. Kind of reminds me of Immortal Soul idea. Everybody's got it. As soon as you die, you go. And you always go up. You never go down, you notice. Uh, that, that was a bit of a Gnostic influence there as well. That Everybody has this special knowledge. The angelic twin that you have. Thus becoming qualified to enter the Pleroma as... Complete perfection. This thinking led to the once saved, always saved, I believe. They taught that the potential for Gnosis is available for everybody. This was a powerful movement. Very powerful. Well, we pin down, we're pinned down by our earthly existence, the Gnostic says. Things don't matter. You know, physical things don't matter. But spiritual things, well, in a way they're right, but uh, as far as salvation goes, but how do we act to Yahweh? We act through our actions, our physical actions. And we follow his word through physical actions. And then, of course, prayer and this sort of thing. But they reject all of it. They reject all physical things. The indwelling spark must, be awakened from its terrestrial slumber by the saving knowledge that comes from without. If the words ethics or morality are taken to mean a system of rules to follow, then Gnosticism is opposed to them both. Because they usually originate with the Demiurge, urge what we've already rejected him. On the other hand, morality is said to consist of an inner quality, an inner integrity arising from illumination of the indwelling spark. This all gets very, very cloudy, very hazy when you get into it. So they can kind of switch things around as they go. It's all about self. Self is the enemy of truth. Self is, in itself, is the love of, uh, of, of self of sin, what opposes Yahweh? If you're having problems in life, look at yourself. Look at yourself. For the Gnostic, morality needs to be viewed primarily in temporal and secular terms. It's always subject to change and modification in accordance with the development of the individual. So it's very fluid. There's no standard. See, that? that's another thing we hear today. Well, those Old Testament that... that, that, that you don't need to follow that. That's, that's passe. That's gone. We don't need that. Yahshua is love. We rely on him. He is my obedience. <clears throat> we who try to live the word, to live the truth in all areas of our lives, see what's ahead. We know that it's going to be tough coming, tough going. So we live for his kingdom now which is not of this world, Yahshua says. You live for a different kingdom. And if you're faithful, Yahweh will be with you. And we'll all pass away one day like smoke from Dooley's wood furnace. And our life's record will be a permanent record of how we live this life. And once it's made, once we're gone, we can't change it. That's it. We want to make it the best we can to live the best we can to do the most we can for Yahweh. Make your life count, brethren. Adhere to the word given us. Don't get off tangents on these other teachings. Reap the coming joy when Yasha comes back and we can say at last, at last it's over. And we can be with Yasha forever. Wherever he goes in this universe, we can be with him perhaps helping him, doing what he wants us to do. Whatever grand plan he has in his kingdom, we want to be part of that. That's all that matters. What this world is doing will pass away. There'll be no more. earth. So He's going to remake this whole world. He's going to burn it up and make it new. That's what we have to look forward to. And keep the faith. Don't let things discourage you. Keep strong in the word, because it'll all one day be, be good for... Uh, For you, if you remain faithful to him. And Yahweh, we bless you.